This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and this is our 21st episode. And we are so thankful that you've taken time to tune in again. And if you've been listening recently, you'd know from the 19th and 20th show that we are releasing lectures from the Jonathan Edwards for the Church Conference, which was at Durham University back in February of 2014. I went to both give a lecture and to represent the Reform Forum at the conference. And as we noted already, all the lectures will be published in a forthcoming evangelical press publication under the title Jonathan Edwards for the Church. This 21st episode is the lecture that I gave while I was at the conference, and it is on Jonathan Edwards preaching Christ in the Song of Songs. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you. I want to thank um, Roy and Bill for having me here. I am the least qualified to be here. And I mean that, and so I'm grateful for this opportunity and all the work that went into this conference. Um, the title to this message is a bit misleading. Um, it is not um, specifically focused on Edward's preaching of the Song of Songs, although that'll be a part of it, so just give you a heads up. It is more looking at um, his hermeneutic and how that kind of undergirds his use of the song in preaching and elsewhere in his writing. So please keep that in mind um, as we walk into this. Many of you will no doubt be familiar with Edwards' uh, often cited statement, God created the world for his son, that he might prepare a spouse or bride for him to bestow his love upon. What you may not be as familiar with is that this idea structures so much of Edwards' theology, and it forms the basis of his understanding and preoccupation with the idea of excellency, beauty, delight, sweetness, and glory of Christ. This is nowhere seen as clearly as it is in his writings and in his sermons on the Song of Songs, or Canticles, as the Latin title has it. A thorough consideration of his writings on the song is surprisingly one of the overlooked treasuries of Edwards' theology. A brief perusal of his writings in the song yield a wealth of hermeneutical and theological gems. It will help us today to consider Edward's use of the song in his writings and sermons, his hermeneutical principles for interpreting the song, and a few reflections on what use we ought to make of it. Well, it should come as no surprise to us to discover that Edward's fascination with the song began in his youth, very close to the period of his conversion. In personal narrative, he reflects on the spiritual impact that the song had on his soul in the early days of his Christian experience in his own words, and I quote, from about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward, sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. My mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no books so delightful to me as those that treated of the subject, the words of Canticles 2.1 used to be abundantly with me, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys, 
The words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time, and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. So important is the song in Edward's early years that Ava Chamberlain has suggested that Edward's understanding of the song was what had the great impact on him as he, as he crafted those ideas of beauty and sweetness and excellency that manifest themselves everywhere in his writings. She will argue, and I think correctly, that it is the source at the inception of Edward's understanding of those things, the spiritual impact it had on him that then permeates itself through all of his other writings. In the over 500 references to verses and canticles scattered throughout the corpus of his extant writings, Edwards left us with a veritable commentary on the book. I'll say here, interestingly, um, David Lovey and Benjamin Westerhoff, who have recently published a commentary on Romans by Wiffenstock, they've culled together all of Edwards' uh, references to Romans. The next one coming out is on the Song of Songs, so be on the lookout for that. There is a functional commentary on the book in his writings. These citations come either in the form of hermeneutical observations or in the form of rich Christological experimentalism. Now, let me say this. I think if you could uh, reductionistically kind of break everything in Edwards down on the song into two categories, you would have hermeneutical principles, how he gets to Christ, very careful theological ways, and then experientialism, what good that does in your soul in Christian experience. And though somewhat reductionistic, it can be said that Edwards' references to the song and his notes on scripture, miscellanies, and the blank Bible are the more hermeneutical in nature. So uh, notes on scripture, if you've read that at all, you'll know are his reflections to his entire ministry on how he understood what he understood about scripture, how he got there. He's sort of showing you the tools. Um, the same in many of the miscellanies in the blank Bible. Whereas his use of the song in the Great Awakening writings and in his sermons are more explicitly experiential. While certainly not mutually exclusive, these two categories structure all of Edward's thought on the song to some extent. Um, we are first met with Edward's appreciation for the song in the early entries of Notes and Miscellanies, having begun wrote, writing notes at the start of his pastorate in 1724 and having penned the last entry just two years prior to his death in 1758, Edwards gave the church a rich array of scriptural meditations that span the entire period of his pastoral ministry. I'll come to this in a minute, but it's very interesting. Entry number eight in notes is on the Song of Solomon, very early in his pastorate, and the last entry, 507, I believe, is on the song. And so their book ends for the rest of what he writes in notes essentially. Um, Harry Stout has suggested that Edward's notes are, and I quote, rich but understudied exegetical writings that provide important materials for exploring the biblical groundwork of Edward's thought. Edward's notes on scripture are, alongside of the miscellanies, though not nearly as developed, the longest running product of his reflections on the meaning of scripture. One of the most significant observations about these understudied exegetical writings is that in the final entry, 
Edwards left us one of the strongest hermeneutical keys to a Christological interpretation of the song. One can only wonder whether Edwards intentionally brought notes to a close with entry 507 because he deemed it the greatest reflection on scripture that he had through a lifetime of theological study. At the very least, we can conclude that it's the mature product of the reflections of the greatest mind America ever produced. As has been noted, Edwards' fascination with the song was no novel thing at the time that he penned the final entry. And I've already noted the bookends, and I would just point out that there um, are 149 references to canticles in those 507 notes. Even a cursory consideration of Edwards' references to the song and notes uncovers a number of interesting observations about his preoccupation with the song. As I've noted, entry 8 was on song 8-1, a summary statement about the incarnation and benefits of the incarnation on the church. And the final entry, and it is remarkable, and if it's the only thing you read, if all you read is that last entry, and that's the only thing you remember me saying, it is masterful because what he does is he takes Psalm 45, which is clearly messianic based on Hebrews 1, and he parallels the language with the language of the song, and it's very convincing. That being so, we can conclude that Edwards' fascination with the song permeated his theological and spiritual interests from start to finish during his ministry. We immediately noticed that toward the end of his life, Edwards picked back up on what had impacted him so much in his earlier parts of his life, and that he was more given to focus meditation and theological observation on various portions of the song. For instance, entry 486 to 497, it's a series don't know how long he was working on that, but obviously it was a very focused series where he is, he is unpacking the riches of Christ from the song in different verses in those um, 11 or so entries. They bear this fact out for us. That specific cluster of theological considerations include a series of suggestions about the spiritual meaning of bodily and geographical allusions in the song. As usual, J.E. kept a constant Christological reading throughout. The references to geographical locations and their supposed theological meaning are some of the most interesting in that series of meditations. And I would just bring us back to that last note for a moment. The importance of the final entry of notes cannot be stressed enough. There, Edwards suggested that, and I quote, both these songs treat of these lovers with relation to their espousal one to another, representing their union to that of a bridegroom and bride. Quote, in both the bridegroom is represented as a king, and in both the bride is spoken of as a king's daughter. Another quote, in both the bridegroom is represented as greatly delighted with the beauty of the bride, and in both the speech of the bridegroom is represented as exceeding excellent and pleasant. Edwards continues, in both the ornaments of the bride are represented by costly, beautiful, and splendid attire, and in both as adorned with gold. In both, the excellent gifts or qualifications of these lovers by which they are recommended to each other are delighted in one another, are compared to such spices as myrrh, aloes, etc. And in both these songs, the bride is represented as with a number of virgins that are her companions in her nuptial honors and joys. And if that's not enough to convince you... Edwards will go on and give you many, many more reasons. I think it's a a fascinating comparison that he draws there. The remarkable similarity between the theme and the language of Psalm 45 and the song make Edwards' conclusions all the more convincing. This section of theological exposition is arguably the most substantial of J.E.'s hermeneutic. 
and one that ought to receive far greater consideration than it has heretofore. When we come to Edward's use of the song in the miscellanies, we uncover another extremely important source of materials. Miscellany number 1069, which is commonly known as Types of the Messiah, is, and I quote here, a long treatise on the subject of biblical typology composed between 1744 and 1749 while Edwards was minister to the church in Northampton. In Types of the Messiah, Edwards makes mention of the typology found in the song in the 73 references to various verses. It's specifically in this work that some of the most biblical theological observations on the song emerge. In turn, these observations became the hermeneutical foundation for Edwards' Christology, and his experiential application of the song. Well, during the period immediately following the Great Awakening, Edwards made frequent use of the experiential nature of the song. So if you've read things in Edwards about the song that were not in the previous mentioned materials, you've probably read his more explicitly experiential works, and a lot of those emerged at the time of the Great Awakening, obviously. Um, I believe to bolster his nurturing of the spiritual well-being of those who have been the subject of awakening. For instance, he made use of the song in his distinguishing marks in 1741, citing it seven times. Then in 1742, he would send off the manuscript for some thoughts on revival in which he referenced the song 16 times in all. In 1746, the publication of Religious Affections further revealed Edward's thoughts on the usefulness of the song. In this work... Edwards appealed to various portions of it a sum total, total of 13 times, nine of which are set in the third and final section, which you'll know by the title Distinguishing Signs of Truly Gracious and Holy Affections. Not surprisingly, the references in Distinguishing Marks, Some Thoughts, and Religious Affections show a more thoroughgoing experientialism and less explicit theological exposition in the use of the song. In this way, it's easy to see the strong relationship that existed between Edward's use of the song during the period of revival and the way in which he used it in his sermons in Northampton. Pastoral commitments lent themselves to the value of the experiential use of the song as over against, and I'm careful in saying that, the theological exposition of the song. Um, as we move now into just a brief consideration of the references to the song in his sermons, um, I just point out that from 1724 to 1748, Edwards preached 13 sermons on various portions of canticles. So we have 13 that we know of. Of those 13, nine remain in sort of fragmented form. Only four have been published for reading. Only two are found published in Yale vol volumes, and I think it's volume 48 and 49 of Sermons 2. One has been published um, in the Don... Kistler edited Puritan Pulpit on Canticles 5.1, Persons Need Not and Ought Not Set Any Bounds to Their Spiritual and Gracious Appetites. And one has been recently published in the McMullen edition, The Blessing of God, Edward's 1733 sermon on Canticles 1.3. That's the most famous, and we'll get into that some. It's a very important sermon. Um, he preached it twice, once in 1724 and once in 1733 in Boston the second time. And that title is that Jesus Christ is a person transcendently excellent and lovely. All of Edward's sermons on canticles preached at Northampton contain less theological exposition of the text or book than we find in the aforementioned works. Rather, the content of his sermons are in keeping with his use of the song in the Great Awakening writings 
full of thoroughgoing experiential exposition. Additionally, there were occasions where Edwards altered a sermon that he preached in one context for another, including more theological exposition. Such was the case with his sermon on Canticles 1-3, from which the opening citation, and I've actually moved that, so that's a mistake, so scratch that. We'll touch on that in a second. He, he, altered, he altered the introduction to the specific hearers. So he preaches it in 1724 in Northampton, and he preaches it to his congregation. He preaches it again in Boston in 1733, and the speculation is that he is preaching it to a much more um, academic uh, setting, that it's a lecture form, and so we find more theological exposition in that. We find his defense of Solomonic authorship and how that plays into his interpretation of it. We find a lot more hermeneutical principles in that latter edition. That's the edition published in the McMullen version. So if you don't have the blessing of God, I encourage you to get that, and you can read that sermon there. Um, Ava Chamberlain has called Edward's sermon on Canticles 1-3 an earlier exploration of the theme Edwards develops in the sermon on Revelation 5, 5, and 6, and you'll know this, the excellency of Christ. So there are several scholars who believe that Edward's exposition of Canticles 1-3 is the foundation of much of what he says on Revelation 5, 5, and 6 in the excellency of Christ. I think that's remarkable. It's one of his most loved sermons. This is no insignificant observation. Um, Edwards draws from the canticle sermon in the excellency of Christ. He draws on the experiential language of, of canticles. This should come as no surprise, as we've already seen the early influence that song had upon him in his being captivated by the excellency, sweetness, beauty, satisfaction, and glory of Christ. The sermon on Canticles 1-3, as I've noted already, was preached to a, and I quote here Wilson Kimnack, a more sophisticated auditory, a more sophisticated auditory. Possibly, again, the reason why it contains a more substantial exegetical element than that that was true in the Northampton 1728 sermon. There are uses of... There are uses of the Song of Songs in Edward's other sermons that I find fascinating, not just those texts that are explicitly um, on a verse from Canticles, but the way he uses it in his other sermons. And I want us to just consider briefly um, the way in which he does that. The earliest supplemental references to Canticles are found in Edward's sermon, A Spiritual Understanding of Things Denied to the Unregenerate. Now, this sermon is the backbone of a supernatural light imparted. I think I'm correct in saying that. And that sermon has a cluster of citations from Canticles, and this is the first of his sermons to deal extensively on the topic of conversion and divine light. It's preached very early in his ministry. It was this sermon that led, in the words of Thomas Schaeffer, to the essay on excellency in the mind, number one, and anticipates in nearly every aspect of divine and supernatural light published in 1734. In this sermon, Edwards makes use of the sensory experience language in the song to explain the nature of saving grace in the life of the believer. Edwards wrote, and I quote, The spiritual illumination of the minds of believers is resembled to tasting, Canticles 2, 2 through 3, and his fruit was sweet. Tis no wonder that none can tell how sweetly the fruit of the tree of life is, but those who have tasted. No wonder that none know that the Lord is gracious so well as those who have tasted and seen. Believers have had those exercises of soul toward spiritual things that are very well represented to tasting. 
They have tasted of the bread of life by faith. They have drank of the water of life. They have tasted the wine and the milk that Christ has given. Tis these only that can testify from their own knowledge that the judgments of God are sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. Edwards continues, The spiritual knowledge of the godly is resembled also to smelling a sweet perfume. Thus, Christ is called a bundle of myrrh for the sweetness of it to the smell. Canticles 1.13, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. Thus, he is said to be a rose and a lily in the beginning of the second chapter because their odoriousness. And so, Canticles 5.13, his lips are like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Now, there are no descriptions, however accurate, of the, sweet, of the smell of sweet-smelling myrrh that can give anyone to understand it as those that have actually smelled it. The next example of observable dependence on the song is discovered in Edward's Sweet Harmony of Christ, a sermon on John 10.4, which he preached in August of 1735. Here, Edwards relies heavily on the idea of the beauty and loveliness of Christ as he finds the same ideas scattered throughout the song. J.E. has significant reliance on the song. For instance, he wrote, Christ is altogether lovely in the eyes of a Christian. There is nothing in Christ, no attribute or qualification, but that he is lovely to him on account of it. Not only his goodness and grace, but his justice and sovereignty is lovely to the Christian. Canticles 5.16, he is altogether lovely. So also the Christian may be said to be wholly lovely in the eyes of Christ, for though there be much remaining deformity, yet tis as it were hidden from the eyes of Christ that he sees it not. Doesn't sound like the stern Edwards, so many paint him as. He does not behold iniquity in Jacob, nor see perverseness in Israel. And therefore Christ says to his church, Behold, thou art fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. And again, Christ and the true Christian have desires after each other. Canticle 7.10, I am my beloved's. His desire is towards me. And the desire of the Christian soul is after Christ. By night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loves. The true Christian has an admiration of Jesus Christ. He admires his excellencies. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And so Christ is represented as admiring the excellency and beauty of the church. Canticle 6.10, who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners? Now, one of the most interesting, at least in my personal opinion, examples of Edward's use of the song is a sermon, an installation sermon he preaches in 1746 for Samuel Buell, who was a a friend of David Brainerd. And I find it interesting because I wonder how many of us who are ministers would preach an installation or ordination sermon and heavily import the Song of Solomon into it. You You get something of Edward's appreciation for this neglected book, that he would preach this an installation sermon. The sermon was based on the words of Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, and the title, The Church's Marriage to Her Son. Some of you will have read that. Edwards appealed to the song 19 times in this text, which should be no surprise to us since it contains an analogy to the bride-bridegroom theme of Scripture. Ken Minkema has remarked that this sermon is, and I quote, a rapturous 
meditation that encourages communicants to put no restraints on their spiritual appetites and to swim in rivers of pleasure. I love that. In a special way, one can see how important the song was to Edward's view of the gospel ministry. It's not only that which aids in stirring the hearts of believers to the glory and beauty of Christ, but is paradigmatic for the goal of all true gospel ministry. Wilson Kimnack sums up this focus on this sermon when he says, On the whole, the church's marriage is a celebration, not merely of a minister's installation, but of the process of redemption through the preaching office in what Edwards clearly intimates are the latter days before Christ's heroic return to reclaim his spouse. Now, that's the first part. Secondly, I want to consider with us Edward's hermeneutical principles for interpreting the song. Um, Sometimes terms are difficult to define. Um, Different people import different meaning into definitions, and so I'm going to try to explain as, as basically as I can. I think that Edward's overall approach to interpreting the song would be a canonical approach, and he often uses that word canon when he's explaining the meaning of the song, when he's getting in the more theological um, uh, hermeneutical uh, writings that he's doing on the song, he'll use the term canon a lot. He wants you to know the book is in the canon. It's, that's its largest context. We might also call it a covenantal approach. Um, I think Carl Bogue or Bogie has done a great job of showing the covenant works, covenant grace scheme in Edwards and that that's a structuring feature. And, and so a canonical or a covenantal, or we could call it a redemptive historical approach. And What I want to say here is that at every point, that is guiding Edwards. That is a consistent, guiding, hermeneutical principle for him. He never deviates from that. He doesn't just come to Scripture with a post-Enlightenment grammatical historical approach. I had a lot of debates with friends over this over the years. Two articles I would recommend to you. um, Vern Poitras has written a great article called The Presence of God Qualifying Our Notions of grammatical historical method, Genesis 3.15 is a test case. And Gerard Ebeling has written an article that's very helpful, The Significance of the Historical Critical Method for Church and Theology in Protestantism. And what both are going to argue is that before the Enlightenment, it was grammatical, historical, theological. After the Enlightenment, the theological has been ripped out, and we're just going to read this almost like any other literature on any other level. And so I think that it's helpful to remember that Edwards is always importing that theological. It's not, it's not allegory. I think there are times he allegorizes. But it's not allegory to read the Bible theologically. I think we have to be clear about that. Edwards' canonical approach to the song is one by which he sought to understand the song in light of previous revelation of God and wherever applicable to do so in the light of the fuller revelation of the New Testament. One might ask how this differs from the modern delineation of the grammatical historical school of interpretation. I've already dealt with that. Um, When Edwards sought for a connection to any given verse or verses of the song, he often did so by means of a grammatical historical method that was self-consciously functioning within the framework of the redemptive revelation that preceded the writing of the song. Now let me 
trying to make that basic. He is looking at the etymology, he is looking at the narrow context of any given passage, and he is looking at it in redemptive history in light of the previous revelation in the canon. So he's always looking back behind wherever he's working and saying, how has this progressively been revealed by God where we're at in redemptive history, and how does that guide my interpretation of this passage? So Edwards is self-consciously doing these things. Edwards was so committed to this principle that he suggested that this process could determine even the authorship of the song, a much-debated subject still in our own day. We see this principle clearly in the introduction to his sermon on Canticles 1-3, the 1733 Boston Version. In the introduction of that sermon, Edwards explained that the Song of Songs was nothing less than the most excellent of Solomon's 1,005 songs. So the Bible tells us Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. And Edward says, it is the Song of Songs. It is the superlative Solomonic song. And he says in that introduction, it is more than all his other songs, and it's the only one that made its way in the canon. Furthermore, Edwards noted that the Song of Songs was the only one of Solomon's songs inserted. And I'm going to read the intro to you because I think it might be helpful. He opens that 1733 sermon in Boston with these words, We read in 1 Kings 4.32 that Solomon's songs were 1,005, but this one song, of which is inserted in the canon of Scripture, is distinguished from all the rest by the name of the Song of Songs, or the most excellent of his songs, or more than all his other songs, as the subject of it is transcendently of a more sublime and excellent nature than the rest, treating of the divine love, union, and communion of the most glorious lovers, Christ and his spiritual spouse, of which a marriage union and conjugal love is but a shadow. Since Edwards' understanding of redemptive history held a prominent place in his hermeneutical process, it should not surprise us to find reference to the song in the history of the work of redemption. In the only reference to the song in the history of the work of redemption, Edwards writes, I would here take notice of the additions that were made to the canon of the scripture in or soon after Solomon's reign. There were considerable additions made by Solomon, who wrote the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, probably near the close of his reign. His writing, the Song of Songs, as it is called, is what is especially here to be taken notice of, which is wholly on the subject that we are upon, Christ and his redemption, representing the high and glorious relation and union and love there is between Christ and his redeemed church. In short, all the evidence points to the conclusion that Edwards viewed the song as a superlative, redemptive, historical song of all songs in scripture. This will see remain the constant guiding principle by which Edwards sought to interpret its parts. So that's the big principle with which he approaches the song. Now here are sort of subcategories of that. First, union with Christ. I think it could be argued that union with Christ is the nerve, or a nerve, of Edwards' theology, that it runs through everything that he writes. He understands union with Christ as central to all theology. In light of that, he saw the song to be a divine poem in which the love relationship between Christ and his church is set out for the spiritual well-being of those in union with Christ. Because he viewed it as the nerve of his theology, Edwards had no difficulty in taking the clear statement of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 20 through 25, and apply it to the union um, between Christ and the church as it works itself out in the song. On the other hand, 
what steps he took to arrive at the conclusions about the symbols and illusions in the song are a much more difficult matter. It would be too easy for us to say, well, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Here's a couple in love. It's in the Bible. They might be married or they may be getting married. And maybe it's moving from before their marriage to after their marriage. There's a lot of speculation. We could make the step, therefore, it is about Christ and the church. But Edwards doesn't do that. He takes great care in working with that framework in going into the symbols and understanding the biblical theology of them and how they support the conclusion that it's about Christ and the church. So I'd like to table for a second, moving on to Christ and the church and going into his principles. Now, as I've said already, one of the interesting things when you look at the references, um, when you look at Edward's references to the song, is that he is very consistent in that canonical approach where he goes back and looks at the previous revelation. And one of the things he does that's fascinating, and I've, I've actually not seen this in anyone else's work on the song, is that he really looks within just the history of Israel. So he knows that they're in the kingdom period when the song is written. He knows that Solomon is king. He's the son of David. He is the covenant head, the type of Christ to come. He'll talk about that. And what he does is he goes back to the inception of Israel. He goes back to the formation of Israel in the book of Genesis, the patriarchal period. And he goes from the patriarchal period to the kingdom. And he looks at all the illusions in the song that deal with those parts of redemptive history. And he kind of limits himself in some respects to that. Um, As he does this, Um, I think the four categories that we really see um, him doing this, Edwards drew off of things pertaining to the patriarchal narrative at the inception of of Israel, Israel's sojourning in the wilderness, their conquest of Canaan, and the establishment of the kingdom. In this way, he kept his initial inquiry to the meaning of many of the allusions in the song to that period of revelation. He viewed these typological events as foundational to the correct interpretation of the song. They were the background upon which the characters of the song were used to act out a redemptive drama. Edwards discovered the entire history of Israel under theological symbols and figures in the song and in the allusions to former aspects of God's dealings with his church. And I think he was absolutely right. There is no other explanation for so many of the symbols of the song if you don't take this approach. He then set that conclusion in its perspective, biblical, theological context in which Christ would come into the world to fulfill all things for his church, to redeem his church, everything that Israel was typifying, everything that Israel was anticipating and was preparatory for. Edwards would then look forward to the fulfillment. He would take the history. He would look at the symbols. He would then wait and prospectively look forward to the fulfillment of those things in Christ. The song was for him a song about the story of Israel in light of God's redemptive dealings with his church. One example of how J.E. interpreted allusions drawn from the history of the formation of Israel was his explanation of God's dealing with Jacob, who was interestingly the first representative of the old covenant church that bore the name Israel. In Types of the Messiah, Edwards did explain what he thought to be the historico-theological manifestation of the name Mahanaim. So if you're reading the song, you'll come across this, this name, Mahanaim, which you'll find first in God's dealings with Jacob when he was fleeing from Esau and he divided his camps and they called the place Mahanaim, which means in Hebrew, two camps. And Edwards is looking at the song's use of 
Mahanaim, and he's saying it has to have some theological meaning, it has to have some spiritual meaning to it, and he finds it in the, God's dealing with Jacob in those days in the patriarchal period. And this is what he says in, in one place. The church or spouse of the Messiah is spoken of in Canticle 6.13 as being represented by the company of Mahanaim that we have an account of, Genesis 32.1 and 2, made up of Jacob's family and the heavenly host that joined them. Again, in entry 85 of Notes on Scripture, Canticle 6.13, what will you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies or the company of Mahanaim. Edwards says, the two armies that are the company of Mahanaim are the church of God in earth and in heaven, the company of Jacob and the company of the angels. Maybe some allegorizing there a bit. The church militant and the church triumphant, for both these armies make one spouse of Jesus Christ. In his lengthiest lengthiest entry on the song, in notes number 460, Edwards again made reference to the theological meaning of Mahanaim. Again, he writes, it greatly confirms that the spouse is a people and the church of God in particular, that she is compared to an army, an army terrible with banners, and a company of two armies or the company of Mahanaim. This is a prime example of Edwards seeking spiritual meaning in the historical events surrounding the lives of the patriarchs. I would say here, Jesus did this with Jacob's ladder, many of the types of the historical settings. So, th- so if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna cry out spiritual illegitimate spiritualizing, um, we need to be careful because Jesus did this, and I think Edwards is following him. A fur- we're not Jesus, I realize that, but we have that example. A further example of this principle is Edwards' theological explanation of palm trees. So as you're reading the song, you'll come across the language of the palm trees. Edwards goes to Israel's history again, and he says the 12 fountains of water and the three score and 10 palm trees that were in Elam, Exodus 15, 27, were manifestly types of the 12 patriarchs, the fathers of the tribe, and the three score and 10 elders of the congregation. I think he's right. The paternity of a family, tribe, or nation in the language of the Old Testament is called a fountain, Deuteronomy 33:28. Israel shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Psalm 68:26. Bless the Lord from the fountain of Israel. Isaiah 48:1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. Moving from the patriarchal period of Israel to the wilderness experience, Edwards pointed out the significance of the wilderness language in the Song of Solomon when he explained, and I quote, the congregation in the wilderness were in the form of an army, and an army with banners. An army with banners is my beloved. I would never say that to my wife. (laughs) Edwards understood the redemptive history of Israel as an army with banners in the wilderness. I'll spare you the rest of the quote. It's a great quote, though. Another interpretive step for Edwards was that which concerns the theological meaning of the names of significant individuals during the kingdom era of redemptive history. For instance, Edwards understands the beloved, and this is very important. He understands the beloved, David. Interestingly, that's, a, that's like the oversight of the universe, is that the beloved's name is David, and how many people make that connection? The son of David is writing the song about David, the beloved. Um, Edwards actually says here, 
in, I believe, Types of the Messiah, David was ruddy and of a fair countenance and goodly to look to, agreeable to Psalm 45 too. You are fairer than the children of men. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chief among ten thousands. And again, Edwards writes, David by occupation was a shepherd. The beloved is a shepherd. And afterwards, he was made a shepherd to God's Israel. Psalm 78. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Edwards further unpacks the significance of the name Beloved by means of the parallel he drew be- between the name Beloved in the song and in Isaiah 5. Another very clear connection. Let me sing a song of my Beloved about his vineyard. Very clearly messianic. There's no argument about Isaiah 5. Everybody who loves Jesus gets that. And yet, for some reason, that connection has not been paralleled in the song. Notice that Edwards draws that out and, and says essentially it's an ob- obvious interpretive step. Additionally, Edwards understood Solomon's name to be pregnant with theological meaning. He noted, and I quote, the Messiah is called by the name of Solomon. Solomon means peaceable one. Understanding the idea of the beloved as the peace giver and the Shulamite, whose etymology probably is one who receives peace, is paramount to understanding Edward's remarks on the typology of Solomon in the song. He is God's covenantal son. You can see in vivid detail Edward's covenant theology guiding his typological understanding of the establishment of the kingdom of God in the days of David and Solomon and how that is reflective of the fulfillment of that type in the greater son of David. In a sense, you could say that he employed an etymological theological interpretation of the covenantal types with regard to the names of David and Solomon. Now, to me, the most fascinating of all the types, and probably the most helpful to me as I've studied Edwards, are those that deal with the kingdom period and the temple imagery. Now keep in mind, Edwards believes that Solomon wrote the song. Edwards knows that Solomon built the temple. And so if there are parallels between uh, Solomon building the covenantal dwelling place of God and language in the song, we ought to draw that conclusion. And Edwards does that exact thing. Um, In Types of the Messiah... In one of the sections, Edwards sets out a, clusters of what, a cluster of what he deems to be types of Christ in the language of the song drawn out of the tabernacle and temple imagery. He wrote, Something in the kingdom of the Messiah is spoken of in their prophecies under the name of pomegranates, which were represented in the work of the tabernacle and temple. And he quotes five places in Song of Songs. The church and the people of the Messiah are in the prophecies of the Messiah compared to and called a palm tree or palm trees, which is an argument that they were typified by the figures of palm trees in the tabernacle and temple. So pomegranates, palm trees, lilies, pillars, cedar, that's all temple. It's all temple imagery that Edwards is going to argue Solomon brings into the song because they have a biblical theological purport to them. So that's, that's huge to understanding how he gets to Christ in the church. Edwards, again, talking about language in the song and language drawn out of the temple and the, the typical ceremonial elements of Israel's cultic practices, says, 
the name of the incense and the name of the sweet spices that were used in the incense and anointing oil in the sanctuary are made use of to signify spiritual things appertaining to the Messiah and his kingdom in the book of Canticles. And then he says, something spiritual in that prophecy, Psalm 45, is called needlework, the name of the work of the hangings and garments of the sanctuary. The garments of the church of the Messiah are spoken of under the same representation as the curtains of the tabernacle and beautiful garments of the high priest. Canticles 1.5, something in the Messiah's kingdom is called by the name of the outward ornaments of the temple. Edwards tied together the biblical theological significance of various ceremonial elements in the tabernacle and temple imagery with regard to an inspired love poem when he wrote, and I quote, the excellencies both of bridegroom and bride are compared to spices. And there he lists a series of references in the song to spices. An ointment perfumed with spices, the same spices were made use of to represent spiritual excellencies in the incense and anointing oil in the tabernacle and temple and also in the oil for the light. Now, I realize that we may not be intended by God to guess how the peg, the tent pegs of the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. I realize that. But the writer of Hebrews, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in some way everything about the tabernacle was pointing to heavenly realities to Jesus and the benefits of his redemption. Everything. And we have that from God explicitly in Hebrews. And so Edwards is drawing on that. He's saying, look, if, if all those things, spices, incense, all this temple and tabernacle imagery has spiritual significance, why would we not try to find that in the book written by the man who built the temple, which was the more permanent tabernacle at that time in redemptive history? While it's well attested that the majority of British and New England Puritan pastors and theologians viewed the song as a divine love poem depicting the love between Christ and his church, Recent charges of allegorizing often carry more weight because of the lack of evidence of a robust redemptive historical element to safely guide their exegesis. I know that this is daring, and I'm sure somebody's going to correct me, and I'm just a type of Nick Batzig, so I'm hoping the greater Annie type will show up and defend this somehow. Um, But um, I think that Owen, who has often hailed the master of... um, Christological interpretation of the song doesn't give you enough steps in how he gets there um, in communion with God. I think he just goes there oftentimes. Edwards is much more careful, much more precise. He's bringing you along in showing how he gets there. Um, we're almost out of time, so let me skip ahead, if I could, to uh, some reflections and criti- criticisms very quickly. Um, First, I think we need to allow our hearts to be stirred to a greater understanding of Christ's love for us and a deeper zeal for a reciprocal love to Christ. And I think that God has given us the Song of Solomon to help do that. I need more love to Jesus. And God has given us a book, I believe, that its intention is to stir that up, that we would understand the riches of the everlasting love of the God-man, the greater David, the greater Solomon for us, whose love is is as strong as death, whose love is better than wine. It's better than wine. Wine is good. It's better than wine, the Bible says. That that is to stir up within us zeal for knowing Christ's love and loving him in response. I think that Edwards helps us in his humility. I know that this I'm introducing 
um, uh, sort of a, a new point here, but Edwards will often use the word um, probably when he writes this probably is depicting this. And I think there's a, there's a great deal of humility with Edwards, and yet it's coupled with theological rigor, and we should follow that example. When we, when we do uh, biblical studies, we should do it with zeal, but we should do it with humility. And I think Edwards models that. I believe that Edwards' harmonization between the language and theology of the song with the language and theology of the rest of the scriptures is a foremost example for us, that we should, we should study how he's doing that. Somebody made the point earlier that Edwards said we, we, should be, um, we should be often in the scriptures, that we should have a, a, a great working knowledge of the scriptures. I think that's how Edwards gets where he gets in the song. He has, a, he has an unparalleled knowledge of the scriptures. And I think that that is an example we need to learn. Two criticisms, quickly, um, and they're, they're minor. Uh, I do believe Edwards allegorized at times. There are times when I read things in the song and... And I think mm, it's a bit of a stretch, but I think that it still has experiential value for us. So we need to be careful not to allegorize. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, though, who said, I'd, I'd rather see Jesus where he's not than miss him where he is. I think, I think I know everybody's going to criticize me for that. I get it. I think there's some value to that. But you, I'll just... Um, finally... I wish that Edwards, this is just a sort of a, a personal desire, I wish he had put more of the theological in, uh, steps, more of the hermeneutical steps into his sermons, because I think that they would make them even more powerful, and they would be, I think they would be received more. He did it for the sophisticated auditory in Boston, and I wonder, I think about as, as I'm a pastor, how much my people would benefit not my people, God's people, how much the people I shepherd would benefit um, from me teaching them how to study the scriptures. You know, that's something I've learned over the years is that most people don't know how to study the scriptures. That's part of pastoral ministry. So I wish mild criticisms, I think, um, I wish Edwards had imported more of his hermeneutic into more exposition, as it were, into his sermons. Um, One is hard-pressed to find a more widely varied interpretive spectrum on any portion of scripture than that which is true of the Song of Songs, the highly symbolic and metaphoric language of the song, the ambiguity surrounding the characters, the plethora of methodological approaches proposed throughout history make the interpretation of the song one of the most difficult hermeneutical tasks for pastors and theologians. The more widely we read commentaries on the song, the more tempted we become to throw up the flag of surrender and cast aside any hope of understanding its place within the canon of scripture. To do this would be a mistake of monumental proportion. The song has rightly held a place of prominence in the pulpits and ministries of some of the greatest pastors and theologians in the history of the church. While coming to a settled position on the meaning of the song may seem like a hopeless endeavor, a consideration of the hermeneutical observations of the man who is arguably the greatest mind America has ever produced, or as a friend of mine has said, the greatest American Britain has ever produced, may prove, and that's true, may prove to be the very key to recovering a Christological and canonical interpretation of this superlative redemptive song.